Hi, everybody. Welcome to Radio 815, the podcast about J.J. Abrams and his extended Bad Robot universe. And right now, we are in the middle of a lost rewatch. We are deep into season four. Today, we are going to be talking about episodes 11 and 12. My name is Matt Crandall, here as always with my co-host Marcelo Inostroza. And I've just got a question for you, Marcelo, in regards to episode 11, Cabin Fever. Do any of these items belong to you? Uh, unfortunately, no, they do not belong to me. But when I saw that specific individual come to John in the foster home that he was, was in, I lost my mind. Because what this episode does is it basically shows... John Locke's conception, basically. And it really indicates that a specific individual was interested in John in certain points of his life. But because of John Locke's hubris of who he thought he was going to be, he possibly missed out on being somebody better. With that being said, I think that this episode asks a very interesting question between destiny and fate. And I just like the way that this episode was constructed. The way that this episode made me think about my own life was really, really intriguing to me. When this episode opens, and it is a traditional flashback episode. So comparatively, you know, we have done a few flash forwards. We've been all over the place. And it starts in the 50s. And a woman is dancing around listening to Buddy Holly, which I have to think was a very intentional choice. Buddy Holly's every day and Buddy Holly tragically died in a plane crash. We see her and at first I'm like, who is this? And she gives birth and as she's giving birth, talking about all of her situations, I started to know when they were like, what's the baby's name? And they're taking the baby out and she's like, call him John. And I was like, I frigging knew it. And I just love that then we do see Richard Alpert show up and it starts to raise so many questions. And as you talked about, he shows up later in John's life in kind of a Charles Xavier type of way to audition John for this school for gifted children. John makes the wrong choice when he's trying to identify these objects because he picks a knife, which is so the wrong thing for John Locke. But I just love that it is really adding fuel to this fire. Is Locke special from the get-go? Has this always been the island calling this guy to it? Because we know that he is special since the plane crash. But this is saying maybe part of the reason that plane even crashed to begin with is because John Locke was on it. And these flashbacks really add fuel to the fire because not only is Richard Alpert in the John flashbacks, but one of the latest flashbacks is John after he's been thrown out the window, after his father has screwed him over. He's had a tough day of rehab. He gets in the chair and an orderly is pushing him and they pan up and it's Matthew Abaddon, Lance Reddick, and he tells John to go on the walkabout, which we know John is going to go on and that is how John gets to Australia and how all of these things start to line up and be put into play. And I just thought these moments that really reveal not only in the flashbacks a lot about John, but start to line up dominoes, making us think that so much stuff that could have been random now does not seem random at all. Just had my mind racing and the on island and on boat stuff is interesting but not as much as the flashbacks in this episode. A lot of the stuff that I just really gravitate to and found fascinating were the lock flashbacks. 
if you really think about it, with the lock flashbacks being structured the way that they are, the island thought that John was a substitute for someone else who we'll get to later on. But I think what makes John truly special is the fact that he won't go. He won't pass that individual line in the sand of killing someone. It's the dividing line between John Locke and Benjamin Linus. And I really think that this episode is a really nice setup for Benjamin Linus's story and the fact that someone really starts to put the screws to Benjamin Linus's future on the island. Yeah, definitely. That stuff is the most fascinating. And certainly this Ben and Locke dynamic that they've been kind of playing up uh, I love that there's a moment where it is the passing of the torch between them because Ben has done everything he can to kind of knock John Locke down a peg and knock him off the throne because Ben feels like they have been in a battle for who is special and who is not. When they are looking for the cabin to try and find the information about what they should do next and they get there, Ben says, it's not me who's going to find out what we have to do because Jacob, I no longer carry favor with him, John. It is you. Obviously, the island has turned on me. The island gave me a spinal tumor. The island is not loving me anymore because destiny, John, is a fickle bitch. And I just thought that, really summed up everything begrudgingly between these two guys and it was just so fascinating and that moment where Locke does go into the cabin and he has a talk with Christian and then we pan over and Claire is just chilling out like nothing is going on is such a what why do you think Claire was there and what is the writer's intention with having Claire abandon Aaron and hang out with her dead dad after so long. That moment when they finally got to the cabin, John says, okay, Ben and Hurley, will you accompany me to the cabin? And Ben says, I think you should go in by yourself. And Hurley goes, I'm, I'm with Ben. I'm just going to stay out here. When he walks into the cabin and he has that uh, light in front of him and you see somebody sitting there. And the second I heard that person speak, I was like, get the fuck out of here. It's Christian. I lost my goddamn mind. What Christian says to John really makes me kind of go crazy. When John pivots and sees Claire sitting there, I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell? And then I got to thinking in one of the flash forwards that Jack eventually goes back to Kate. And when Claire said, I'm fine, this is where I need to be, and Aaron shouldn't be here, right? He doesn't belong here. That got my wheels turning to a possibility that we'll get to later. But my favorite moment of this episode where I went bananas. So John walks out of the cabin. He says to Ben and Hurley, I went in there and I know what we have to do now. And they go, what? And he goes, we have to move the island. So I'm like, oh my God, it's finally happening. Everything that I've been alluding to, they're going to move the island. So I just lost my bananas. That was like a chef's kiss, man. They're finally going to move the island. Who knows what they're going to have to do to move it, but I don't care. This episode was just phenomenal for the deconstruction of fate and choice and John Locke's backstory was just phenomenal. But that last scene with John in the cabin speaking to Christian and Claire, oh, so beautiful. 
So well done. Yeah, and that bombshell of we have to, he wants us to move the island. I remember now, obviously, if you're rewatching, it doesn't seem like a foreign concept. But in May of 2008, it was like, what the actual fuck? How would you move an island? It just added more to the mystery of what exactly is this island? If it can be moved, is that part of the reason why it's like untethered in time? And is that part of what the hatch was keeping in place? So I did love that it was a concept we didn't even think was possible. Nobody would have guessed until that moment. And it was just such a out of left field. The fuck? The other stuff that we should probably just touch on briefly before we jump to the next one is that on the freighter, Michael has been outed as the traitor and Kimi comes back after murdering Alex and says like, all hands on deck, we're going to go back and murder everyone. They have to figure out, you know, how to do that, how to keep everybody from interfering with his horrible plan. And he straps a dead man switch device or something on his arm. And there's a lot of tension. Saeed takes a boat to go back to the island to try and warn everyone before the mercenaries return because they are coming back to follow their secondary protocol, which is basically a wipe the slate clean, tear it all down. This Kimi guy is just becoming a real son of a bitch villain. I'm glad that Saeed is taking action to try and cut that off. But there's a nice scene between Michael and Frank where Frank says, dude, why didn't you tell me the truth? Obviously, I'm the one who told you I believe in all of this stuff. Why didn't you tell me you were on the plane? And Michael's like, your boss is the one who faked the thing. And then Frank says, oh, don't believe all the conspiracy theories out there. So Frank is trying to throw doubt on whether it was Widmore who put that plane at the bottom of the ocean or not. So Lost, when they, they feel like they have shown their cards, they keep trying to edge them back a little bit. So there's still a few possibilities because Frank doesn't think that it was Widmore. Last week, we were sure it was Widmore. So the battle with the mercenaries is starting to ramp up as we head into the epic finale that is three parts. We're going to talk about one part of it today because it did air in two different blocks. So Marcelo, what were you thinking as we start to kick off There's No Place Like Home Part 1, Episode 12 of this fourth season of Lost, which did air two weeks before the back half of it. And it opens with the Oceanic Six, a flash forward where we finally realize that they did include Aaron in the headcount of the Oceanic Six. And Oceanic's representative is played by Battlestar alum Michelle Forbes. What did you think seeing the press conference when they had been rescued? I really, really adored this episode. Specifically, I love the shot. The aircraft carrier finally lands and you see the back doors open and you see the silhouettes of Hurley, Saeed, Jack, and Aaron walk out of the plane. And then to see the press conference, that really was wonderful because in that press conference, for some reason, Sun is acting a little odd and a little strange. She's uncomfortable for some reason. When I saw this episode today, I was like, why is she acting so uncomfortable? I mean, what could have happened? Because Sun is a person that generally goes along with what Jack says and what the group says. But I, I was thinking to myself, what could have possibly happened to make Sun show that bit of hesitation? My favorite part of this episode, if I could just 
fast forward just a little bit. I love the scene where Jack finally gets to uh, give a proper eulogy to his father Christian, even without a body. But after the eulogy, Claire's mother walks up to Jack and basically tells that Claire is Jack's half-sister. Throughout that entire speech, I was like, okay, get to it, get to it, get to it, get to it, get to it. Are you going to say it? Are you going to say it? And when she finally said it, I was like, this is the reason why Jack came back to Kate. You know, I was wondering, did he tell Kate that Claire was his half-sister? Was that something that he kept to himself? That was like the highlight. It was just so great. That was the best scene of these flash forwards. And I do think that he did tell Kate at some point because it was still questionable last week. There was that episode where Jack and Kate have their big future falling out. Jack does scream about Aaron like he's not even related to you. And so that planted the seed that we weren't sure if Jack had the information that he was related to Aaron or not. And this explicitly gives it to us. The woman playing Carol Littleton does a great job with the emotion, but Matthew Fox really excels in that scene where we can see him mentally putting things together and trying to deal with this information that he didn't know his father had another child. And then when she says, my daughter, the weird thing was you didn't know it. You were on that plane in the air for six hours together. Her name was Claire and you see Fox and it's so subtle, but it's so powerful putting those dots together in his mind. And as this information that Claire is actually his sister. And then Carol goes to Kate and compliments on how beautiful Aaron is. And us knowing that that's her grandson and Jack realizing that that's actually his nephew. It grabs you by the soul and shakes you. It's really powerful. And now we're starting to fill in these gaps. And of course, because we know Claire is not part of the Oceanic Six, it's really too bad that Jack is getting this information at a point that presumably him and Claire are never going to have that moment where they realize together their bond. They're not going to be able to hug it out with every information that we have now. We feel like that's not going to happen. Things could change as this show gets weirder and weirder, but I did like that that was such a relief that we finally had it out there. We know who knows and when, but also devastating to know that these two characters are never going to meet in that brother and sister moment of recognition together is a cruel, cruel joke on the part of the writers. But I did like that we had such a variety of flash forwards, the press conference when we're trying to piece together their actual story. And man, they spent a lot of time showing us how the cover story worked where Oh, they were on a boat and they went to here and they went to this island and this island. And it's like, okay, there's almost too much detail in this cover story for it to be legit. And then we get a great scene where Sun confronts her father, lays out everything that she blames on him and says, you know, you were the one who did this to us and I have bought controlling interest in the company. And when I have my kid, I'm going to take this thing over and it's not going to be this corrupt bullshit and you are not going to be part of it. And I love that because Mr. Pike is finally getting what he deserves. And Hurley's surprise party was so light and fun and sweet. And then I love that his father is there. So his dad did keep his promise that like he was not going to leave this time. And they have that great moment where he gives him the car. And it's so sweet and uplifting until Hurley looks at the odometer and the numbers are there. And Hurley freaks the fuck out. We know that, you know, this is the car that he drove in the premiere, but it is still 
this curse is chasing him, even though he thought he could get away from it. And that is one of those really cruel, cruel moments that the writers love to sort of twist the knife on our characters. And that had me laughing and smiling and then like, oh, Hurley, this sucks. So I did love that these flash forwards jumped all over the place, but we're all so satisfying as we see characters start to to deal with their past traumas or trying to escape them, but being unable. You know, when we started this season, I thought the flash forwards were going to make me confused, make me upset and make me basically try and put together my own headcanon of what's happening here, which it still is. But I think that the flashbacks really add some emotional punch to these scenes that we are seeing today when Hurley loses his mind after he sees that his father finally put the the car back together and he reads the speedometer and he, and it has a lost numbers and he just loses his mind and and goes crazy and goes running down the street from an entertaining standpoint that scene is entertaining but it also like you Matt it makes me feel really sad Hurley is like one of the best characters on the show but the sometimes the way that they use mental illness and they sort of wrap it up in this science fiction burrito I enjoy it and I understand why the writers did it but they it really bothers me all the characters that we haven't lost they are amazing characters and somewhat get a happy ending and Hurley seems to be the one that doesn't get that I mean that that's a jumping the gun but it really bothers me that Hurley hasn't found peace yet how do you feel about the way that the writers are handling Hurley in that aspect yeah it is frustrating and I know one of the golden rules of screenwriting and writing for a tv show is that you have to put your characters through hell because then when they finally get out of the other side it's more satisfying to us as an audience we have to see them at their lowest the worst days of their lives for it to then be satisfying later but sometimes certain writers put a character through hell and don't give them the rainbow at the end so far it is frustrating because we like hurley so much because his on island presence is usually so jovial and kind-hearted that whenever we see him suffering in the flashbacks or flash forwards, it hurts. It hurts to see that even in this nice moment with his dad and then it's ruined by the numbers is kind of him getting in his own way where he can't stop thinking about this curse and these numbers. And we wish he could have just started the car and started to drive without noticing it. And then maybe it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because he keeps noticing these patterns. And if he didn't notice them, maybe things wouldn't turn out so bad. But also one of the flash forwards is supposed to be a really sweet and triumphant moment where Saeed and Nadia are reunited, but it's undercut because a few weeks ago we found out Nadia gets murdered. So this is one of the only nice triumphant moments that Saeed and her are going to have together because shortly after they're married, she gets killed. So it's tough watching our characters literally be put through hell and sometimes they don't know the hell that they will be put through, but we know it because we have more information and that makes those scenes play in such a different light. But I thought in terms of flash forwards, these were all really strong and the on Island action really starts to ramp up as everyone realizes they have got to get to the orchid station. This is where the mercenaries are going because they are convinced that this is where Ben and his group are going because we find out in order to move the island, 
they do have to go to the Orchid Station. We still have no idea how they are going to accomplish this, but Ben does say one of the things Widmore knows about this island is that whatever we're going to do, we're going to have to go to the Orchid. So I'm sure these mercenaries, that is where they're headed. We also do get Jack gets a sat phone that gets chucked out of a helicopter and he's not sure if it was Saeed or who did it. And they start heading off, not realizing they are walking into an ambush or a trap. Saeed does arrive in time to try and warn them, but our losties are now in different groups again where everybody is on their own mission and some don't realize they're walking into a bad situation. It was interesting to see that. Marcella, what did you think of the moment that is not on island but is on freighter where Jin and Son realize that Michael has returned and is on the boat? Lost does something tremendously beautiful that I enjoy about TV writing. They don't tell all their characters everything they need to know, but that moment when Son and Jin get reunited with Michael is just glorious. It is so much fun. And the nicest thing about it is that Michael finally admits that he feels guilty for what he did to them. And the only reason that he's on the boat is because he wants to make good with our losties. I like the fact that when they say, you know, you're working for Ben and Michael goes, no, I'm not working for Ben. I'm here because I thought I, I have to do right by you guys. And that's why I'm here. And I just appreciate that moment so, so much. I said that I was never going to forgive Michael. But this episode went a long way into me actually thinking about forgiving Michael for all his past digressions. And for me to say that, I mean, if you've been listening since we started covering Lost, for me to say that, that means a lot. Yeah, and that moment is really nice. You know, Michael fixes the engine because he was the one who sabotaged it. And then when they have that thing and he says he's trying to atone for what he did. And I love that he says, can you translate it to Jin? And Jin's like, I get it. I understand. I understand. That was nice because they both have come so far. And we realize that this guy has done some terrible stuff, but he is trying to make up for it. That leads into they find out there is a massive stockpile of C4 and explosives on the boat that we didn't know about, adding even more drama. And the amount of wires coming out of that stuff looked unforgiving in terms of trying to, to sort this out. And then the only other real stuff of note is just that when they get to the Orchid, Locke and Ben's team with Hurley, they arrive too late. The mercenaries are already there. I just love that Ben is like, okay, we have to find a way to get in there. And I am going to be the guy who acts as the diversion or the decoy. So I will go and I will surrender. And that moment where Ben surrenders to Kimi and then gets smashed in the face with a gun was great because it's not often that Ben Linus will knowingly put himself in a situation that could be dangerous. So I did love that. And it really, the momentum going into the final block of episodes of this season is really ramping up. A lot of stuff is happening. So many questions. Marcelo, how excited are you for these final two episodes? I am completely, completely jazzed. I mean, guys, if, if you think that this week's episode was great and emotional, you have no idea what's coming. If I could say just one thing about when Ben, Hurley, and Locke finally get to the Orchid, 
and Ben basically says, okay, I'm going to surrender myself, and then you, John, are going to go into the orchid somehow. John, quite stupidly, says, Ben, how are you going to do this? What's the plan? And Ben just turns around and he says, John, I'm sick and tired of telling this to you, but I always have a plan. And Michael Emerson's line delivery in that specific moment is just so deliciously good. I mean, oh my God. I love Benjamin Linus. He is possibly one of my favorite villains in a TV show ever. And the more we see of his character and where he might go in uh, the next episodes here and in future seasons, I am so excited to find out. I am really, really excited to find out. So that is what we are dealing with today. If you are following along, the homework for next week's episode is There's No Place Like Home Part 2 and 3, the final two episodes of this fourth season of Lost. If you guys are enjoying the show and like what we do here, please tell your friends, follow, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. If you have any questions for us, you can tweet at us on Twitter at JJUniverse815 or use the hashtag Radio815. We would read your comment on the show. If you want to get in touch with me directly, I am on Twitter at Matt Crandall. Marcelo, Twitter's a good spot. Where can they hit you up? I'm also on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. Thanks very much for listening. Please tune in next week as we put a bow on this season of Lost. Until then, Radio815 over and out.